So a uh, simple question. Maybe you've thought about this before. Maybe you've never really detailed this out. Maybe you've never thought about this explicitly. And we're not going to have a lot of time to, but I'll suggest one way you might want to. Where did you learn where love comes from? Where did you learn about what the source of love is? Where did you learn about love? Clearly, for a lot of us, things come to mind like parents, family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, those in our immediate families, those in our extended families, people we know, people we've grown up with, people who are sitting next to us, people with whom we've gone to church. It could be all manner of sources, especially relationally. But I want to suggest that one of the primary sources, which probably shouldn't be, um, is um, the world outside and not necessarily relationships. Uh, There are many places that are sources for us about the meaning of love, what it is, how it works. Uh, And and too often, those sources of where we learn about love are not Jesus-centered sources. They're not like Jesus at the center places. They are often largely humans at the center sources. Here's what I mean. We could suggest lots of these, um, but I want to propose that we learn, and we're just going to do this as an exercise together here for a few minutes, um, I want to propose that we learn more about the common wisdom of what love is from songs we hear than just about any other source in our lives. Like, seriously, I'm going to suggest that songs, which are wonderful, who doesn't like music, songs are great, but we learn about what love is uh, in a whole bunch of ways that relate to our marriage, our expectations for relationships, uh, things like that, from love songs, probably far more than we are aware, and perhaps, <laughs> no, definitely, more than we should have. Definitely more than we should have. Uh, to prove the point, we're going to finish some song lyrics together this morning. <laughs> A few of you knew by, by, by now knew this was coming. I'm going to tell you the decade and the artist. The first few words, I might, little, might sing a little for you. Um, and then I want you, um, especially the Whitney Houston one, I'm going to... Um, <laughs> we might want to cut this from the video. I'm going to tell you the decade, the artist, and the first few words. And then I want you to finish the lyric with me, okay? All right, we'll start off easy. We'll start in the 60s. 1961, Elvis... Wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't help falling. Yes, very nice. Very good. It's going to get a little bit harder here. 1970s, um, Roberta Flack. Strumming my pain with his fingers. Strumming my pain with his fingers. Singing my life with his words. Yes. That's good. That's good. It kind of tailed off there. That was... Okay. All right. Now you're killing me. 1984, rock ballad, Foreigner. In my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to... I... Yes. Yes. Not now, though. 
No showing what love is, please. Um, 1992, Whitney Houston. <laughs> I'm not even... I know. We don't even... No. No. If I should stay... I would only be in your way, so I go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way. Hey, hey. That's how it goes. Long pause, key change, and yes, and I will. Yes. Yes. It's a good thing we have people who can sing, who lead us. Um, Last one. This one's a little bit harder. But this one's going to prove the point I'm making, as if we haven't already. 2008, Taylor Swift. Wait, I've got to get it in my head. If you can see that I'm the one who understands you, been here all along, so why can't you see you belong to? Yes, you belong with me, he, he. That's correct. Yes, good job. Uh, You should all be kind of ashamed of yourselves for knowing all those lyrics. Those empty, meaningless, vapid, drivel, no. Um, to make the point, though, uh, that common wisdom about love, what we sort of understand about love, the things we hear about love, um, have little to do with the actual sacrifice involved in love. In case you think I'm kidding, that last lyric from that song, uh, the YouTube video for that Taylor Swift song has almost one billion unique views. And it's the fifth most of her videos. Meaning there are four Billion-plus YouTube videos of Taylor Swift, unique views worldwide. Something like 15% of all living people on the planet today have watched a Taylor Swift music video on YouTube. So common wisdom about love. Common wisdom about love. It doesn't come from here, y'all. Uncommon wisdom does, though. Uncommon wisdom comes to us in the pages of the revealed truth about God, about Jesus, in the lived word and the written word. It's the uncommon wisdom about love that sacrifices, that is the proof of that love. That's what we're going to learn from Jesus here. So love that gives sacrificially, which is the uncommon wisdom, is a loving life that means more. The loving life that means more is a life of a deeper understanding of following and experiencing the love of God because we give that same kind of love to others. So we experience it and others around us do. That's what the loving life means more thing today is. Sacrificial love that lives like Jesus, that comes from God and that doesn't look like normal horizontal reciprocal love, that's a life that can mean more because that's love that looks like God's love for us. Jump in at Matthew 5, where we study the words of Jesus together, where he begins by restating for us 
at the very beginning here, what had become common wisdom about love in Jesus' day. All right, this is sort of the equivalent of all those songs we sang as it was understood um, by the people in his day. He jumps in to give us that understanding of the common wisdom about love. In verse 43, jump in at chapter 5. Jesus speaking this whole time, he says, You have heard that it was said. The common wisdom about love is you shall love your neighbor, which was scripture, Leviticus 19, we'll get back to that in a second, and hate your enemy, which was not scripture. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is half quoting scripture and half quoting sort of Jewish oral tradition here to make the point that what had become a common sort of wisdom about love was actually a perversion of God's intent. Okay? So here's what I mean. Look at what Leviticus 19 verse 18 actually says. Let's look at this together. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here in Leviticus, the Jewish teachers of the law interpreted that word neighbor to mean only those of Jewish nationality and faith. A neighbor was our own people, right? Like they believed like us, they looked like us, they went to temple like us, all those kinds of things. And if neighbor here meant only those of Jewish nationality and faith, then the application of that meant functionally that love became a social reciprocity kind of give and take kind of interaction and transaction with one another, right? If neighbor means only those of our own kind, then the application of that functionally meant that love was a reciprocal thing between me and my own people. And if love was a reciprocal thing between me and my own people, then the opposite of that, the extension of that, sort of like the next step in logic of that, must be hate your enemy. Love those close, hate those far. And that's not just something that we're saying is like a a logical inference of what I previously said. That's not just a logical conclusion. That's actually the, the, the common way they talked about it. We have lots of evidence that that way of thinking about love had taken hold. Love people close, hate people far. That actually became the lingo. Many Jews were known to say, love the brother, hate the outsider. Love the family, hate the enemy far from us. They called non-Jews racial epithets and slurs and things we shouldn't say. Many Jews considered the Gentiles, the non-Jews, basically non-human. Now, Parenthetically, we must say, this is not to be missed, lest any of you think this kind of thinking was something particular to the Jews at the time. This isn't a particularly Jewish problem. Loving those close, hating those far. Humanity's history of hatred across all time and all ethnicities and all political systems conservatively accounts for many billions of deaths by war and government and murder across all time and ethnicities. So don't, don't sit there thinking, oh, I told you they. I knew they. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy had become a saying considered in practical terms part of Jewish oral law, just like most folks functioned Jew or not. We track him? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It wasn't a particularly Jewish-only thing. Greco-Roman society had it in spades comparison to them. Just like 
we have some of that in us too. Take care of your own, y'all. Take care of your own. So, Jesus calls all of this, in, all of this into question. <laughs> Starting in verse 44, he redefines common wisdom about love and he says, you've heard this, but I say to you, which by the way is a claim to authority, you've heard this, but I say to you, love your enemies. Notice, it's a plural. It was a singular before. <laughs> Jesus says, not just one, but all of them. Love your enemies. And then he says, and if you're going to love them, this is what it looks like practically. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, take in what Jesus has said here. You heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, as the Son of God, Messiah, here to show you what love really is and how it really works, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not only does Jesus refute the common wisdom of the day and turn it on its head, he ups the ante considerably. And he tells us not only to love our enemies, but to pray for those who are harming us. Please don't show hands. How many people today woke up with a prayer list with a whole bunch of enemies on it? People harming you. as a reflection of the grace of God to you. How many people woke up today going, I've got to pray for this enemy. I need to care for this person who harms me. Now, to your average Joe in the street, of course, what Jesus is saying here, the suggestion that we should love our enemies, to the average Joe on the street, non-Jew, that's an absurd idea. Love my enemies doesn't even make sense. But to your average Jewish person, overhearing Jesus say this, this idea of loving one's enemies and praying for people who persecute you, who harm you, that's not only absurd, it's outright offensive. It not only would have felt contrary to the sort of social reciprocity, uh, love contract that's required to make the world go round, right, right? But it would have felt to them like an outright rejection of God's law as they had come to understand it because the hate your enemy part had been sort of grabbed from the world around and put together with Leviticus 19 as if that's the way we believe God wants us to work. That was their understanding of how God's law should be applied. So Jesus, given everything we said, the context of everything here, Jesus is calling us uh, from love as a sort of social reciprocity that we're used to and that has to work for the world to work. He's calling us from this give and take with an expectation in return kind of thing. He's calling us from that to a self-sacrificial definition of love as giving that should be applied to a considerably wider definition of neighbor than most of us grew up hearing about and seeing in relationships around us. Are we preaching yet? If you're feeling some of that tension, that's the idea. What do you think they were experiencing as Jesus spoke these words? So, so some of you might maybe feeling what I struggled with, with with the text this week, which is like, so why should I love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? That sounds like a not great plan for moving forward in life and 
finding contentment and peace and joy, right? Why, why are we called to this? Why does he make this so starkly, this redefinition of love? Keep reading, give some good reasons why. Starts in at verse 45. Why should I love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? Verse 45, so that, that's called a purpose clause, a purpose statement, so that in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is a Hebrew way here of saying that loving like this makes us like our Heavenly Father. So here's, here's the test for us that Jesus is suggesting here. I'll put this in the form of a question. This is sort of a filter for how to think about how Jesus is trying this, uh, to apply this to us. Does someone look at your current way of loving others, whether they're close to you or far from you, does someone else look at your current expression of love toward others and they say, ah, he is a son of the Father in heaven. The way she loves shows she is a daughter of her Father in heaven. He or she is, is born of the stuff of the goodness of God that was extended in grace and mercy to all. Like I, I, I can see it. In, I can see it in how they, how they treat their enemies, how they treat those who are against them, how they're self-sacrificial. This is a radical call to discipleship, friends. Uh, Jesus is asking us to go from love as a reciprocal give and take kind of thing between teammates, right? Like between people in the same tribe to love as giving that helps others without limits and without conditions and without expectation in return. That's Jesus' love. That's Jesus' love. And when that happens in, in your life and people can see it, they go, man, that's, that's got to be of God. Because <laughs> that's not normal, is it? Not normal. Not normal. To illustrate the point, Jesus says two things here about this kind of love. Keep reading in verse 45 for the first thing here. He says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. Jesus is, is proving the argument. He's saying, This is how it works. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, in other words, uh, God's common grace, as we call it, uh, God's goodness in the world, isn't given to just his own people. It's given to all people. I mean, Jesus is saying, consider what God has done in nature. <laughs> Whether they believe in him, they worship him, they recognize him as God, or they don't, God reigns on their property just like yours and your fields. You may hope and wish like, I wish... It never was sunny at my enemy's field and it never rained on my enemy's field. But that's not how it works, is it? Man, Jesus is good, isn't he? He's pointing to God's goodness in nature all around the people listening unto us. His goodness in nature as an act of God's benevolence given to all merely because he's good. Not because these people earn sun and rain, right? Merely because he's good with nothing expected in return. Jesus might have well had said here, listen, the Father makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall 
on everybody's crops. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Does the, does the rain and, and sun only come on yours? I'm, I must have missed that. In case you're new to us, by the way, I have an inner sarcastic Jesus sometimes. <laughs> probably, probably not the Holy Spirit so much, but don't be too weirded out by that. Um, bottom line is that God's goodness is given to all, and the people listening here at the time, both to Israel and on the nations outside of Israel, because he is good to all, without condition, without anything expected in return, and merely because he's good. Merely because he's good. That's, that's radically selfless love, friends. So the first thing Jesus tells us about this love is that it's without condition. And when we love like this, we're loving like God. Merely because it's out of the goodness that comes from him. And the second thing Jesus tells us here about love is that this kind of love, this going beyond self-sacrificial, looks like God kind of love, is evidence of the Spirit of God in you. And it's what distinguishes God's people from not God's people. That kind of love is what distinguishes God's people from the world. Keep reading verses 46 and 7 here. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? This is that love is reciprocity thing that we were talking about earlier. Do not even the tax collectors... (laughs) Uh, like even the despised tax collectors who bilked the people so that they could be rich, even those guys, don't they even do the same? Don't they love those who love them? And if you greet only your brothers, if only your friends, those like you, those of your tribe, those close, if you greet only them, what more are you doing than others? Do not even, I mean, Jesus, this is the original Jesus juke right here. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. <laughs> like, let's be clear here. Jesus is saying, you love those who love you back? Big deal. Congratulations. You're like practically every other human being. Big deal. The pagans do that. Certainly wouldn't try to make an argument, right, that that, that kind of love is the kind of love that looks like the Father's gracious love because He loves you out of the goodness of His heart without anything in return. Certainly you wouldn't try to make an argument that your social reciprocity love to those who are close to you, which is, let's be frank, relatively easy in comparison to those who are far, certainly you wouldn't try to make an argument that that alone is the love that looks like the heart of God. He says the pagans do that. In other words, followers of Jesus have this sort of like Christ like more <laughs> in their love. There's something that looks like Jesus in their love that is noticeable, that is tangible, that people experience, that bring people to the heart of God and that distinguish them from those who don't have the Spirit of God. It is this kind of Christ like more love that is the distinctive quality of a Christian's love. And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning. Is there a Christ-like more in my love? Is there something about our love that cannot be explained in natural terms? Is there something unique about how we love others that is not present in the life of the unbeliever? 
These are, these, these are headier and more important questions than you may think on the surface. You see, if we love only those who love us back or who treat us well or who are one of us or whose language we know, we can track with, and there is nothing more than that, and it doesn't look like Jesus' sacrificial love, then perhaps we are not Christians because we don't understand the love of the Father if we're not treating others that way. Listen, people who follow Jesus love like Jesus. That's the simplest way we can say it. People who follow Jesus to a cross on which he died sacrificially so you can know him and have life love like Jesus. Now, if you're still struggling some, which we probably all are, with this idea of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, if you're still struggling with that thing, and maybe you're still thinking, where does Jesus come off demanding that I love my enemies? <laughs> Think about this. What we have to realize is this, and it's actually a pretty easy transition to make, but this is, this is the key that you have to realize. It's quite easy. We were the first enemies. Every one of us, in our sin... And our trespasses, those are forms of rebellion against God. Make no mistake. Every one of us was first an enemy of God. I'm not just making this up. It's in Scripture. Here are a couple places. Isaiah 53, 6. It says we all, like sheep, because that's what we are. We're sheep. We follow things. We're meant to follow Jesus, but we follow other things. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Romans 5 says it even more explicitly, verses 8 and 9. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on to say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Think about this. While we were enemies to the Father, he reconciled us by the death of his Son. Scripture says... You were God's enemy first. And while you were dead in your sin and helplessly devoted to life according to you, in defiance of God's ways, he made you intentionally, humbly, selflessly, sacrificially in ways that go beyond what any of us understand that he gave up. He made you his friend so you would be his neighbor so that you could, could have a relationship with him. Jesus died to turn you from enemy to neighbor, and he calls us to do the same. So the take-home question for us today is really quite easy. The take-home question for us today is simply this. Who is God calling you to love sacrificially in a way that demonstrates, demonstrates this Christ-like more in your love? Who is God calling you to love sacrificially? And what does that sacrificial love look like? In a way that demonstrates a Christ-like more kind of love. You see, friends, God is love. He loved his enemies. We were his enemies. And the cross made you his friend. So why would we love without expectation of return? Why? It doesn't even make sense. 
Why would we love without an expectation of return or because of some sort of inherent goodness or worth in value to us in the other person? Because God made them, God loves them, just like you believe that about yourself. And because the loving life means more because when we love like Jesus, we experience his love for us. Think about the implications of this. It's easy to sit there and think, man, does God really love me? How does this whole Jesus and the cross thing work? I'm not sure. I have questions. Am I loved by him? Test this. Love others in a way that's sacrificial, that looks like his love for you, and you'll go, I get it. I get it. You will experience it. And you doing that will mean others around you do too. The loving life means more because it means a deeper experience of the love of Jesus. And you and others around you will see in greater relief, in tangible ways, the love of God for you. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we commit ourselves anew to you today. Some of us commit ourselves to you for the first time today. Lord, give us the courage to continue to say yes to your work in us. Lord, forgive us for uh, not believing you and continuing to uh, to manipulate relationships around us in ways that are about um, a give-and-take social contract that doesn't trust, Lord, that your ways really work. Forgive us, Lord. Give us a vision for uh, giving of ourselves without condition so that we could experience, Lord, your love for us. How deeply uh, you love us and how, uh, how massively helpful for us when we were enemies in our sin, your sacrifice for us was. Make this real in us, Lord, uh, so that you would work through us and so that others would see your love, so that we would see you reveal yourself um, through this body of believers, so that people would come to know you and they would follow you. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friend Scott had talked about how Jesus